morning to all of you, um, and it's wonderful to see you all. I don't have my glasses on, which is really nice because I can't see detail. <laughs> I can't see you falling asleep, <laughs> but please don't. <laughs> Got a wonderful, wonderful text um, to share with you this morning. Um, so we, I'm going get, to get into it because we've had quite a long morning already, but we're well on our way through the Gospel of Mark. Um, many of you, most of you here will have tracked with us um, at some point. Um, it's been a couple of months that we've actually been just learning about Jesus through um, his, one of his first apostles, Mark, um, as he documented some of Jesus' stories. And um, I just feel enormously privileged, so thank you for listening. Thank you for having me minister. Um, I feel enormously privileged to bring to you um, Mark 14, part of Mark 14, which is um, coming towards the end of Jesus' life. And um, there are three stories that I'm going to be covering. And because it's quite a big body of um, work, I'm going to read one story at a time. Um, they do, the connection is that it's two feasts. And um, if you've been at Red Point long enough, most of you have been here for a very long time. Um, that is a very, uh, we can relate to feasting. We can relate to Jesus loved having meals with his friends, with his disciples. Um, he loved feasting. And we are a church, as you heard <laughs> from some of these life groups, we feast together. So um, that connects us quite nicely <clears throat> to the story. So I'm going to read to you Mark 14. Um, from verse 1 to verse 12, and I'm going to try and do it fairly quickly, um, and I hope you can track with me. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar, poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear that, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Um, okay, so a few things that we see here. Um, first of all, it's an ominous beginning to chapter 14. We can see that now Jesus is beginning to fully enter into the sacrifice, the, his um, fully enter into his suffering, and it's going to be an intense suffering. 
So it's a, it's a bit of a difficult beginning, and we see this very beautiful story that is sandwiched. It, it's actually called a sandwich narrative, where a beautiful story is in between, kind of framed by two difficult, um, um, two difficult verses. The one is that the chief priests, they're not only wanting to incarcerate Jesus, but they actually want to kill him. And it all has to be done secretly. Um, and then the, the verse, the framing it on the other side is how Judas becomes the one that's going to betray Jesus. Um, but in the middle of this is this exquisite story of absolute devotion and extravagant love poured out. So let's have a look. I did want to say there, so if you find that your life is a mixture of beautiful moments sandwiched by some difficult things, it's, it is normal. We find that right throughout scriptures, it's normal as a Christian, it's normal as a, um, as a believer or a non, non-believer. Our lives are always, um, there's always a, a challenge between things that are beautiful and things that are difficult, and this portrays it perfectly. Um, but let's look at the character of Mary. Well, she is unnamed in this gospel, but it is um, it is Mary. She's named in the Gospel of John. Um, she is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And most of you here will know that Lazarus, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, she's Mary of Bethany, and as we see, this happened in a little village called Bethany. Now, there are three times when Mary is mentioned in the Gospels. Um, and every time she is at the feet of Jesus, there's something about his feet and being at his feet that she absolutely, that she is drawn and compelled to be at his feet. The first time we see this is when we hear that they are at a, at a um, there's a feast and um, Martha is busy preparing, which is a wonderful thing. This is not a comparison between Martha and Mary. But we see Mary is at the feet of Jesus, and she's a model of undistracted devotion to her Lord. She had a massive capacity to listen, which is a real um, difficult thing these days, to listen. And even as we sit here this morning, I've really trusted this week, because our God is a God who speaks to us, and he speaks to us every single day. Every day, I believe he's got fresh words for us. That is the God that we serve and that we adore. Um, he might say the same thing to you, but he, he, he wants to speak freshly to us every single day. And um, Mary, was she was hungry to hear what Jesus had to say, and she was hungry to learn. She was hungry to get to know him. The second time we see Mary at the feet of Jesus is when she is grieving that her, her brother Lazarus has died, and we see her, um, she's just flung herself at his feet in absolute grief. And then the third time is when she comes to him at this feet, uh, a moment of absolute madness, and she washes, and she begins to pour out this perfume on his feet. We are told that she uses an alabaster jar which would have been a very bright white jar with a thin neck, and it's held between 12 to 16 ounces of 
an extremely expensive perfume. It was a perfume that came from an oil, nard, spark nard. It came from Egypt in those days, and um, it was um, it came from a rare plant root in India. We are told that it was worth 300 denar- denarius, and one denarii was, was equivalent to one day's wage. So it was about a year's worth of, of wages that she had. And you might, I asked, how come with a wealthy family, how did she possess that? And what I've read as I've researched the story is it could have either been um, a family heirloom, or it could have been that they had actually purchased that perfume to anoint their brother who had died <laughs> before Jesus resurrected him. Um, so anyway, but those are conjectures. But she had this, and um, what does she do? She breaks the jar, and she pours out every little bit upon the feet of Jesus. She interrupts this feast, um, and she does it in front of everyone. She is fully exposed she pours it all over his head. And the Gospel of Mark says it went all over his feet. She pretty much gave him a minor bath in this expensive, luxurious perfume. She anointed his entire body. The most, a most beautiful act. And in a sense, Mary was saying, I, I, I don't want to keep one drop for myself. I don't want one drop left. I want you to have everything, Jesus. I even want you to have my dignity. I even want you I even want you to have my glory. And she lets down her hair, which is was scandalous in those days, and she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus and cleans his feet and, and washes him with her hair. An absolute moment of madness after being captivated by this person of Christ. Not only did she break the jar, but she broke every cultural norm. She broke every protocol of this meal that they were having. Um, what was she thinking, friends? As I, as I share about Mary, what, is, what I'd love you to receive of much greater importance is not this beautiful woman and what she did but who she was doing this for. She was absolutely captivated by this man, Jesus Christ. She had met him. She had sat at his feet. She had, um, she had, been, she had been deeply, deeply moved by who he was. She had seen his miracles. She had seen her dead brother come to life. And here I want to say that Jesus is one that can bring your dead brother to life again. Um, she had made, perhaps seen Simon, the house that, was, that they were having this feast with, Simon the leper. He had been healed by Jesus as well. So it was quite a, a, a very eclectic bunch of people. We had someone that was healed by Jesus, a leper, and we had someone that had been raised from the dead, and we had Judas was there, and his disciples were there, and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You know, it was just this random bunch of people, much like our dinner parties, except we don't always have these exquisite miracles, but we do have miracles of changed hearts, and um, perhaps that's the greater miracle, praise God. Um, 
so she didn't care about what anybody thought of her, least of all Judas. Um, she, she had a heart that just said, you can do and you can say whatever you want, but I have seen this Christ and I want to love him. And unless, there was, again I said, there was something about his feet, unless I get to those sacred feet, I just have to get to his feet. And I have to give. I've got to give. I have to give this man, this, this magnificent man, this, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I have, to, I have to give of myself. I've got to give him something. Um, and there's a statement that says, love loves to give. And she, she, wasn't, she loved Jesus. She wanted to give. He has nothing more to give me. I'm not here to look for something from Jesus. There's a, a little girl that um, was quoting Psalm 23, and she got it wrong, and she said, the Lord is my shepherd, and that's all I want. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful statement. And in a sense, Mary was that. The Lord, is, that's, that's all I want is you and you alone this beautiful man, this beautiful God, this beautiful <laughs> Savior, although he hadn't died yet for her sins. He was about to. In fact, the next day, Jesus was going to get the... Sorry, I might be wrong. There's, there's um, difference of opinion. But within the next few days, Jesus was going to be crucified. Um, I have seen... Uh, Mary saw Jesus for who he is. And I don't think I've got anything better to tell you this morning. I don't think I've got a more important point. But to say, let us be compelled towards finding out who Jesus is. Because we can sit here, we can come to church week in and week out, and we cannot know actually who Jesus is. This is really radically contrasted with Judas, who actually walked with Jesus, one of, uh, Jesus, one of his closest companions, Judas. He was one of the twelve, and he would have seen Jesus do many miracles. He would have seen the life of Jesus, and yet, and I believe this is true, he not only, he not only betrayed Jesus, but he hated Jesus. Because you don't betray a man for 30 pieces of silver unless there is a hatred, and he certainly did not believe who Jesus was. But Mary saw the Christ. She saw the pearl of great, great price, and she was willing to sell everything that she could in order to gain that price. She was a true pioneer of true worship, of someone that says, I want to abandon myself to this to this man who has changed my life. He took a breath away. Have we not all had those moments when our hearts explode? Many of us will. It, it happens to me often during worship where my heart explodes for Jesus and I just feel that he is living and, and, and alive and the beauty, my heart explodes for the beauty of his kindness and the act of um, that sacrificial act of dying, this excruciating death, in order for me to be able to meet with God, the God of all creation. I'm able to meet with him at any time of day that I want. 
because of what Jesus did. So there are moments where we had this glimpse of the King of Glory. Yet it wasn't, it wasn't a reckless, chaotic um, moment. Um, there was nothing, it was very grounded in the truth of what, God had, what Jesus had done for her. It was grounded in the truth that he had radically transformed her life. He had, he had radically got into her heart and had changed her heart. He had, in the, in the physical realm, he had given her her brother back, but he had done so much more in her heart and he had caused, um, he had caused her to fall in love with him. Of course, this did not go down well at all, as we've seen. Um, she was completely misunderstood, and um, she was rebuked harshly. And those words, what they actually mean is it's, it's um, akin to a, a bull fight with his matador. And when the bull sees the red flag, it's, it's like saying um, <laughs> a bull to a red flag. That is how their nostrils flared, and that is the description of how angry they were at her act. And I asked myself, why so angry? Did they really care that much about the poor? Or was it actually that her extravagant worship actually showed them up? We don't know. But what we do know, friends, is that Judas was a very poor man, stricken with poverty, stricken man, one to really feel sorry for. He was completely empty. He had nothing to give. He only had to take, as keeper of the money bag of the apostles, um, it says in the word that he would help himself, <laughs> a nice way of saying he was a thief. He would just help himself to the money. So he was there, just, he was a taker and not a giver. A man to be pitied above all four men. What did he have to look forward to? He had 30 shekels of silver and a suicide to look forward to. If he had only known who was in their midst, if he had only known this king of glory, the people would have said, why so small a gift? Why only one year's wages? Let's go and collect all, everything that we have, let's collect and let's pour at the feet of Jesus because he is worth it all. And friends, it, it's not that easy for us because Jesus is not um, physically with us. And so every act that we do for him is an act of faith. But it, he loves faith and we are called our, our, our faith. <laughs> it's called faith. It's not called faith for nothing. We have to have faith that every single thing we do, when we offer a cup of water to someone, Jesus sees it, and we are doing it unto him, whatever it might be. Why is this? Why was that gift so small, actually? And so they called it waste. So we're going to see a little bit later what Jesus really thought of what was waste, wasteful. But for the time being, um, I just want to say that true worship, and we all know it here, costs us something. True worship will cost us. I've got a list here. It might cost you one of these things. It might cost you the whole list, but it's going to cost you. True worship of Jesus Christ. For me, it's actually cost me all of these things. And I'm no hero. 
by no means, no, no hero whatsoever. Um, it costs you your dignity, your social climbing or your social desires. Worshipping Jesus costs you your financial security and your financial future. costs you your identity. costs you time, your intellect, your youth, your talent, your vocation. So we might say, well then, why do it? It's too costly. And um, I was listening to T.D. Jakes yesterday, and um, I'm sure you all, people that listen to him, love the way that he preaches. And um, he just said, if you don't worship Jesus, then make sure that what you are worship is able to bring you healing, is able to make you whole, is able to deliver you of your sins, is able to save you, is able to give you eternal life. Just make sure that whatever you're worshiping, because that's what, that's what Jesus gives us, the Savior of the world, our most beautiful King. So, how does, how does Jesus respond to Mary? Well, he fights her battle for her. In fact, Mary doesn't say a word throughout this whole, um, this whole narrative. She doesn't say a word, but her actions speak very loudly indeed. And they, re- they have reverberated right through the centuries and right here into our lives today. She doesn't say a word. Jesus defends her, and he fights her battles for her. And uh, recently, I was reading um, in Exodus, there's a very beautiful scripture that Moses, it's Moses' words, and he says, do not, he says to the Israelites, do not be afraid. This is as they are journeying through the promised land. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And friends, that might be for you today. To me, those are profound words. Um, Recently, I was going through just perplexed about a situation. And um, I felt the Lord speak to me. I don't hear an audible voice. But as I've said, God speaks to us. If we are hungry to hear, he speaks. And this is what I felt him say. I am the Lord, Katie. I I am the Lord. And you are not. And allow me to do that particular work. And And I took that around with me for days, in fact for weeks. I am the Lord. Jesus fights our battles for us. So the first thing he said is, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Why are you actually manifesting like this? Is it really the poor that you're worried about? He calls her act beautiful, a beautiful act of devotion. So Mary didn't come just to love me, but she came to celebrate me. She came to enjoy me. She came to anoint me for my burial. She actually came to anoint me before I die, which is which is a beautiful um, picture. Before he died, Jesus was anointed, and she had the privilege. She was the privileged one to do that. In fact, she wasn't one of the ladies at the tomb. Mary was not at the tomb, anointing Jesus, anointing his dead body. She had already anointed him beforehand. She had shown her devotion before. 
And then furthermore, <laughs> which is the deal clincher, he says, furthermore, I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the entire world, what she has done will also be told in a memory of her. And friends, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of the entire world, from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. The good news is there's nothing like the good news of Jesus. And wherever that news goes, Mary and her story and her devotion goes. And so if we think that we are wasting our lives doing things, being in our closets, perhaps praying for situations, um, if, we are, if we are doing things that nobody can even see, we, we know people that are um, ministering and um, spreading the gospel in the <laughs> Afghanistans and Pakistans and um, just putting their lives at absolute risk. Or missionaries, we know them around the world. Or setting up orphanages, uh, <laughs> what we might call waste, what the world might call, call waste. Jesus says, it's going to journey with my gospel to all the corners of the earth. The house was then filled with a beautiful fragrance, which um, we can also speak a lot about that, but that's beautiful in itself. She filled, she changed the atmosphere of the house. She filled it with this exquisite fragrance. Okay, I'm going to go on to the second passage, and um, I hope you're tracking with me. Okay, let's go on to the next piece. This is Mark 14, chapter 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left. They went into the city and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread gave thanks, and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. So we see in this um, narrative, we see again that it's sandwiched by two betrayals. We see Judas going, going out at night to the chief priests and, and telling them that he's going to betray, um, betray Jesus to them. And then we see at the end where Jesus says, actually, you're all going to betray me, all 12 of, of you, my closest disciples. But sandwiched in that is the last supper that Jesus will have. Now, we have to bear in mind that he, he has had a few Passover meals with um, his disciples. And I want to go, although a lot of you will know a lot about the Passover, and there's a lot to know, I'm just going to quickly go through it because it's hugely significant that this is now the night before Jesus was, was arrested, was <laughs> taken into custody, was put onto a cross, and was led to his crucifixion. This is a, couple, a few hours before, actually. So the Passover was an annual feast, and it was the most defining and the most important feast and, um, on, the, on the calendar of the Jewish nation. Um, the most defining moment of their history. It was when they were commemorating when the, ex, the Israelite people were leaving Egypt, and um, it was the final plague, which was the, fan, the sword of God's divine justice, that there was going to be a child, the firstborn of every home in the land of Egypt, Israelite home and Egyptian home, there was going to be a death. A firstborn was going to die. And um, God said to the Jewish people, if you will slay a lamb and put his blood on the doorposts, my vengeance will pass over your home. And that is what pass over means. And this is what they were celebrating, which was a wonderful feast and a, and a, a true celebration. Um, but we know that Jesus was about to become, he was about to become that true sacrificial lamb. He was going to be slaughtered as a lamb in order for the vengeance that should be poured out on us, um, that God would, um, we would be, we would be forgiven. Okay, so the facts the facts of this Passover, it had to, they had to prepare it secretly because Jesus was a wanted man at that time. And that's why there is a secret of nature to going out, meeting this man. And what was unusual in that time is that men didn't carry jars of water. Um, it was the women that did that um, culturally, and the men would carry wineskins on their heads. So it was very easy to see who this man was. Um, and the disciples, the two disciples that went out, they found it just as Jesus had said. And so either there was, either there was a, a providential, miraculous work of God who had prepared everything, or um, Jesus had organized for this to be prearranged, this feast to be prearranged. But we know that when evening came, all twelve went to enjoy this feast together. But then Jesus speaks about his betrayal. And he spoils the party. 
And this betrayal, friends, is uh, the basis of all treachery, the basis of all betrayal, because Jesus says it's the one that dips the bread into the same plate with me. And in the Eastern, um, in the East at that time, what that would mean when you share a piece of bread and you dip it into the same tray, what that would mean um, was absolute loyalty forever. A friendship that um, would last for all generations. And so what Judas was doing was, was the utmost and most dreadful act of treachery and betrayal. The announcement stunned the disciples. It says that they were deeply grieved, they were sorrowful, and Jesus said, but woe to that man. It's going to be as, as predicted, it's going according to the plan of God, I have to die, but woe to that man. And we know that Satan, it says in one of the Gospels, Satan entered, entered Judas at that time. Let's get to the wonderful part of this meal. When Jesus takes the bread, he now takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it. Now we've had a broken jar, we've got broken bread, and soon we're going to have the broken body of Christ. He broke it, he gave it, shared it with his disciples, and he said, take it. Let's go through this very, very quickly. So, he takes the bread. Jesus wants to eat meals with us. He wants to be pre- He's an intimate um, friend. He's an int- intimate savior. He can be a friend to you, your savior, your brother, um, he, your sustainer, your savior, I think I might have said. But he wants to be intimate with you. He wants to take, he wants to be at your table. And so he invites us to that place of intimacy he wants to nurture us and strengthen us, and he's jealous for the time with us. So he takes the bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it. That's important. It's broken. It's not just chipped off, but it's absolutely broken like his body would be. And then he gives it. And Jesus gives us his body. He gives us his body that we might eat of him and absorb as much as we can of him. Um, Jesus Christ the Savior of the world, gives himself fully to us. And what he says is, you can have as much of me as you want. If you want just a little piece, you can have that. If you want just a little piece of the bread, of my body, of who I am. But if you want, you can have you can have everything that I have to give you, all of me. Let's feast on, on Jesus. And then he says, take it. And that is important because we can have a feast laid out before us and we can go, go away starving. We can just look at this exquisite feast. But Jesus is saying, take it. You need to take it. Take it from me. Eat it. Imbibe it. Consume me. Have me. Take the bread. Jesus seldom spoke about his future, about his death without speaking about the future. Because we all know that if it landed in the death of Jesus, it would be a very dark day for all of us. But he, most of the time, he would land it in the future of the world. And right there he says it. He says, I'm not going to drink again from this vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God again. 
And so, friends, this is where he's going. He's saying, I'm going to drink it. I'm going to bring you into the banquet hall of of your king. I'm going to take you. I'm going to lead you into his everlasting arms. I'm going to take you, and I'm going to, and then I will drink it anew with you in heaven, in the in glorious place. This probably happened near midnight, and then it says they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives, which we know um, it it was near where Gethsemane was, which is called, which is the crushed olives where Jesus was going to get. Um, crucified. And then he says to his disciples, he says, actually, you're all going to fall away on account of me. Out of fear, out of weakness, out of pressure, you're all going to fall away. And Peter insists that he will not fall away. Peter insists, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. The interesting thing, friends, that I find here beautiful is, yes, they did disown him in that moment, and Peter did. Before the rooster crowed twice, he had disowned Jesus three times. But out of the 12 original disciples, 10 of them died a martyr's death on behalf of Jesus as they testified to him. 10 of them died as martyrs. Tradition has it that Peter felt unworthy to be crucified the way Jesus was. And so he asked if he could be crucified upside down. He felt unworthy to go the same way Jesus did. So that's where Peter ended up. Yes, he betrayed him. But he ended up being a martyr for Christ. We know that Paul was beheaded. This cowardly group of disciples like you and like me, cowardly, full of fear, full of fear of what the world thinks and full of fear of of what will happen to us as we just feel we're living so contrary to the cultures of the world. And we have to. We're called to that. We're called to be different. We're called to live different. And um, it's, it's not easy. But he transforms, Jesus transforms them into this group of leaders that are about to live sacrificial lives and martyred for, the, for believing in the resurrection. Um, I'm going to end by, I felt like right throughout, as I was reading this text, I had a sense of how the light overcomes the darkness. And I just want to read to you from the beginning of the Gospel of John how Jesus is called the light of the world and how, friends, if you find yourself in a dark place at every occasion that we have gone through in the book of Mark, the light overcomes the darkness. The light will always overcome the darkness. So I just want to read that and I'm going to end with that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Through him all things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it.